This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. This episode of Side Alpha Podcast is sponsored by Lexapol and its digital media community, FireRescueOne.com. Access free COVID-19 policies, courses, and additional resources through Lexapol's Coronavirus Learning and Policy Center are available at coronavirus.lexipol.com. That's coronavirus.lexipol.com. Joining us today is uh, Dr. Terry Jodry. Uh, Dr. Jodry is a board-certified emergency medicine specialist and is a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians and the National Registry Paramedic. Doc's been practicing emergency medicine for 33 years and spent 23 years as medical director for the Prince George's County Fire and EMS Department, my old home, and currently serves as an associate medical director with the Maryland Institute of Emergency Medical Services Systems. Dr. Jodry recently returned from a two-week deployment to Queens, New York, as a volunteer with the International Medical Corps. Doc, thanks for joining us today. I know you've been associated with the fire service for a long time. Can you talk of some of your observations on how fire and EMS departments have been handling their part in this COVID pandemic response? Well, sure. Let me tell you first, thank, thanks for inviting me to participate in this, uh, Chief Fisher. And uh, just before I answer your question, let me uh, just say the International Medical Corps is a non-governmental, non-political, non-religious organization with which I am one of 7,000 volunteers. We do principally disaster response all over the planet. This has been my first response within the United States. They can be reached at internationalmedicalcorps.org. And uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to make that plug. Uh, Much like the medical community at large, the, the public safety community was sort of caught by surprise with this. And some of the things I think that we realized very early on is that a lot of the training we had and have had over years and years and years did not serve us as well as we would have liked uh, in responding to this. Particularly, uh, I would say that our continuous insistence that, that protective personal equipment be utilized properly somehow did not fall into practice quite so well until the the pandemic got quite out of hand. Other than that, I think as time has gone on, we have adapted quite well and come up with new strategies and policies, much of which guided by the experience that's been shared online from provider to provider to help us address this more appropriately. Uh, I will say also in a systematic way that at least in the state of Maryland, uh, protocol adjustments have been made with great regularity to address the situation as it has unfolded. Uh, in the state of New York, where I've recently been deployed, we've seen the same thing. And one of those that really caught a fair amount of attention was the decision that uh, those patients in the out-of-hospital setting who were in cardiac arrest, who did not have a perfusable rhythm on arrival of the uh, first responders, were declared priority four and were not resuscitated in the way we might in an, uh, in the absence of a mass casualty incident. Uh, as we go on, other jurisdictions have come to terms with the fact that perhaps it is imprudent to do what we have done 
systematically prior to the pandemic, and that is to re to assign three to four units to respond on one incident for one patient, thus placing clinicians at risk. Uh, as we go, I'm sure that when uh, you know, over time we are going to find that uh, that all the things we are learning will be incorporated into a coherent theme that will probably be applied uh, nationally through through the through the authority of jurisdictions, but with the the knowledge that's gained from one jurisdiction to another. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think. Um the, the response that uh, we kind of responded overall a little bit late in, the, in that uh, everybody was just expecting to do what we normally do didn't pan out real well. And I think a lot of us saw that. So now I appreciate your observation. Sure. Uh, I, I, if I could add one more thing to that, I think something we've seen here and something we might learn from is that the consistent, persistent annual training for mass casualty incidents in the absence of actually having one has created a phenomenon of, of alert fatigue. That is to say, we've, we've practiced it and gone over it so many times that we've become very complacent, not only about our response to it, but that particularly and, and devastatingly in the, 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 the lack of appropriate donning and doffing of PPE. Uh, because it's, we've been trained and trained and trained on it with no result. Now that it's important, uh, somehow it has failed to have the expect that we would have liked. And, you know, as something I say to, to the EMS providers who are listening to the uh, clinicians, sorry, I don't like to use that word provider, the EMS clinicians who are listening to this, you know, that 2,358 times that you had to spit out scene safe BSI, this is what that was about. You know, and that, and now we're yeah. seeing the effect. Yep. No, that's a great observation. Um, during your two weeks volunteering as a, a visiting doctor, basically there at, at the hospital in Queens, New York, you dealt with a lot of new pains, what I call new pains, because it's, it, it's almost uh, some of the pictures and the things that came out, it's almost third world looking. So I know you dealt with a lot of new pains, but you dealt with a lot of uh, great professionals. Can you talk with us about how that experience has impacted you and, and talk about your observations of FDNY's response to the situation? Absolutely, I can. You know, and, and you, you and I know each other, so you know that third world uh, emergency medicine is not something foreign to me. I do a lot of that <laughs> anyway, right. uh, here and abroad. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, right. the, you know, the situation in, in Queens, you know, Queens is a, a borough of the city of New York the density of which is 21,000 inhabitants per square mile. Now, if you compare that to Miami, where it's like 6,000 inhabitants per square mile, or Boise, Idaho, where it's 1,000 inhabitants per square mile, you can see that this is, this is a fantastic place for a respiratory uh, uh, pandemic to take hold. And so we were getting slaughtered day after day after day. And, uh, you know, the people there... Uh, were showing up and suiting up day after day after day. Some of them were getting sick. Some of them died. And uh, some of them who got sick came back when they were not sick anymore and continued to provide care, which to me is the, the penultimate uh, self-sacrifice. 
So, uh, you know, I had to deal, uh, I had the opportunity to be associated with some fantastic clinicians. Uh, on average, uh, when I was there working what was supposed to be 12-hour shifts, frequently turned out to be 14, 15-hour shifts, I was seeing approximately 30 COVID-19 patients a day, intubating anywhere between 6 and 10 and pronouncing 8 or 9. Uh, we, our, our department expanded. We took over the uh, endoscopy suite where, you know, if you go into the hospital, you might go to get a colonoscopy or something. We closed that down and took that over. We took over the pediatric emergency department. We took over part of the radiology suite and uh, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers and the Fire Department of New York constructed four tents for us that each concluded eight beds. So our capacity, even with that expansion, was woefully in, inappropriate and we were deep, deep, deep in patients all the time. Uh, you ask about the effect it had on me. Well, it was soul crushing and soul feeding all at the same time. And in, a, in an uh, epidemic or a pandemic or when you're in a mass disaster sort of situation, you don't feel anything. You don't feel you do. And later on, you deal with the consequences. And I can share with you, although it's relatively personal for something this, that when I came home, I was a little on the cray-cray side. And I slept 18 hours. And the next day, I got into a fist fight with a container of dental floss. Now, over days and talking to other people and getting all the help I could, you know, things are going better. But if you come away from a situation like this without having some sort of emotional experience, then, then I question you know, uh, how, how aware you are of yourself. Too personal? No, no, I'm still, uh, I'm still reeling with the uh, fist bite with the box of uh, dental floss. So. <laughs> the dental floss but, won't, but, by the way. So. <laughs> but I think, no, I think that's good. I think, you know, our, our listeners sometimes, uh, uh, you know, they experience a lot of the same types of incidents, but to hear from a clinician who, you know, was on the front line with those hospitals and, you know, spending those 15-hour shifts uh, intubating multiple patients and pronouncing multiple patients, it's important to hear that, you know, you can experience that, you can deal with it, and you can come back. And, and the more important message, rather than, than understanding that it happens, is understanding that there are resources for us, you know, an abundance yeah. of them. And for those of you uh, who, are, who are in fire-based EMS uh, uh, systems, who are members of the International Association of Firefighters, they have a fantastic resource that if you go on the uh, IAFF website, uh, you, you can find they have counselors that are available by phone. They have inpatient. They have outpatient. Uh, for other clinicians, there are other resources that are available for you. It, it really just doesn't take a lot. And there's absolutely no penalty whatsoever for uh, deciding that you need some help with this. And, you know, if, if you don't ever need help, then you need help. I appreciate your perspective on that, uh, doctor, and uh, we're going to uh, continue with the questions. But, you know, first, during this crisis, firefighters can access online coronavirus-related courses and policies for fire and EMS at no cost. Access is available for first responders and agencies nationwide. To learn more, visit coronavirus.lexapol.com. That's coronavirus.lex. I-P-O-L dot com. Lexapol is the leading content policy and training platform for public safety and local government. 
Doc, as we talked about your experience there uh, in Queens uh, in FDNY helping out with uh, getting the place set up and, you know, all of the different factors, can you spend a couple minutes telling us about your observations of FDNY specifically, their response and how they're dealing with what's going on from, from what you saw there in the Queens? Well, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it can be said that uh, in the first two weeks of April, the last week of March, the call volume in terms of request for emergency medical services in the city of New York outstripped that of 911, uh, 9-11-2001 uh, every single day. Uh, again, in a city where the population is dense and crowded, this disease took off. Uh, needless to say, uh, a phenomenal number of clinicians who provide EMS services within the city of New York became sick. Now, we have statistics from the FDA, the fire department for the city of New York, but be advised that they are only one entity providing uh, public safety EMS service. Uh, the vast majority of advanced life support services provided within the city of New York provided by clinicians who are employed by hospitals. And they all come together as an amalgam in an EMS system for 911 response. So some of the data is not yet available in terms of how many folks on the uh, commercial side or the hospital side, the ALS side, have gotten sick. But we know that a full quarter of clinicians who are, uh, who are currently assigned to, be pro uh, to provide emergency medical services, a quarter of them have become infected. Uh, as a surrogate marker, uh, we see that uh, approximately 2,500 transit workers have become sick and over 50 of them have died. Uh, 27, this is data from a couple of weeks ago, 27 doctors and a, an incountable number of nurses, respiratory therapists have become sick and died. So the impact was substantial. Uh, the uh, state of New York, which also, like the state of Maryland, has uh, protocols that are statewide, started to make adjustments regarding uh, assignment to uh, to incidents to decrease the exposure of clinicians to this virus, and again to to curtail any sort of interventions that would aerosolize viral spread, such as the use of nebulizers or the use of uh, bag valve mask uh, devices. So FDNY and the the other entities that provide EMS service within New York are stepping up. But again, I think it's important to realize that at every stage, every one of us who's had any kind of uh, plenary uh, ability, or uh, we've all been caught with our pants down and we are making things up as we go. Uh, when I say making things up, I mean we are correcting our course as we go to, uh, to incorporate data that we're collecting as, as the incident unfolds. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't think it's unfair to say making it up uh, as we go. I, I think that observation has been something the average fire chief and EMS chief has witnessed uh, daily on the street during this with the uh, different policy announcements, whether it's at a federal, state, or local level. There is a certain amount of making it up because it's never been experienced before. So I think Absolutely. while that may, yeah, it, it may seem like harsh words to some, uh, it's truth. And, and that's what, uh, yeah. And colloquially, so, uh, I will say for your listeners who uh, 
who are social media savvy, which is probably about 99%. There's a fantastic meme that's been going around about a, a drinking game. And the drinking game is you take a shot every time your agency produces a new policy around COVID-19. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah, so I don't <laughs> want to know how many shots my agency would have taken. Yeah. But thanks for that there, Doc. I appreciate it. So um, what do fire and EMS chiefs need to be doing now to be part of the bigger solution? So we have begun to, to soften the curve, to flatten the curve, whatever terminology you want to use. Uh, we've begun to come to the other side, but we know there's still a long way to go. What do fire and EMS chiefs need to be doing now to be part of the bigger solution? Fantastic question. And, you know, first, when we talk about flattening the curve, let's not be misled. Flattening the curve does not decrease mortality from the in incident. It, it spreads it out so that what happens is instead of inundating your system all at once, you're going to have a partial inundation that lasts a very long time. And that's the way flattening the curve works. Uh, it protects you against being completely overwhelmed at once, but it doesn't take you out of the woods altogether. So you, this is going to be going on for a long time if we do it right. You know, if we do it wrong, it'll be over really soon and the mortality rate will be astronomical. If we do it right, the mortality rate will be similar, but it will occur in a, a, a way that is so stretched out that we are not inundated. I want to share a statistic out of Florida with you that the governor used yesterday to explain what you just said. So um, when this first started in Florida, uh, the projections were, now who the projections came from is always open for debate, uh, for debate but the projections were that Florida would see 465,000 people hospitalized. That was the projection, and we don't have nearly that number of beds here. But as the, and that would be if it was uh, uninhibited growth of the virus, 465,000 people would be the expectation. So at the height of the curve, and as the curve began to be flattened by all the different actions and reactions, the most that Florida experienced was 2,100. So it, it shows how the impacts of uh, you know, where we were headed based on what it looked like in the beginning, to the actions they took, took us from a projection of 465,000 to a reality of 2,100. Yeah. So it I, really does show how comment, the curve works. Let me come on to, comment on that for a second, okay? Yeah. When you talk about a project, projection, you're talking about modeling that's done based on uh, economic models, economists. And economists are fantastic at doing this. When they have the variables and the numbers to feed into their models that make it make sense. Unfortunately, in this set of circumstances, so much of the modeling we saw was based on data that we did not have, and it was based on assumptions. So when you say 465,000, this is a number that they might well have pulled out of the sky. Because again, you know, with the amount of testing we had, the number of people who have become sick and died and the unknown of the people who have become infected and did not get terribly sick or did not have any symptoms at all were just uh, complete unknowns. So, you know, the modeling there, although based on projections that that make perfect sense, and I'm not knocking the academics, but sure. it's it, you know there is a certain amount of the phenomenon of garbage in, garbage out, 
And yeah. I, I find that in so much of the statistical information we get to where I frequently will tell people, if somebody tells you something about this disease and they equate a number with it, please disregard. Now, I will make an exception there. You know, yesterday we got information from a very well, well-designed randomized controlled trial in multiple countries of uh, an antiviral agent called remdesivir that really seems to make sense. I mean, the numbers in this make sense. The study was well conducted. And there's a difference between a statistic that's like that and a statistic where somebody pulls numbers out of the air and spits them into a model. So, yeah, I, I, but I, I don't want to discount your point. Flattening the curve does decompress the system, and that's a fantastic thing in terms of uh, our ability to, to not make ourselves, as in those of us clinicians sick, to not uh, use resources in a way that would be inappropriate where you could use them more appropriately. I will give you an example. Uh, you know, that much has been made about the availability of ventilators, and all of a sudden it became a national priority to produce many, many ventilators. And you know what? It was very successful. We have all the ventilators we need. But in order to manage a patient on a ventilator, you need more than the ventilator. You need the respiratory therapist. You need the intravenous pumps to provide the sedation so that they can tolerate the ventilator. All these things are, are also important. And, and this is something we really need to take away as a lesson here, that to focus in a pinpoint way on one aspect of a problem rather than seeing the entire problem and all the resources is, is, is a, a mistake that I, hopefully we will never repeat. Yeah. So the, the one thing we began talking about, and I think uh, both of us got a little sidetracked on fire and EMS chiefs being part of the bigger solution. Mm -hmm. Where, what should they be doing? What should they be looking at uh, now, both from a policy perspective, but also operational perspectives? Sure. Well, I, I would have to say that a lot of that is what fire chiefs and, and, and directors of EMS agencies should be doing all, all along, which is looking out for their people, making sure they are properly trained in PPE, making sure that they are ready for uh, uh, service that might require them to, to go the extra mile, of, uh, the, the extra second mile above the extra mile that public safety employees go anyway, to be very well attuned to their health and mental health, uh, and respectful of that, and of course, to do all the things that, that they should do every day anyway, which is have respect for the work of, of EMS providers. Uh, as you and I would agree, it probably makes sense to have them have a medical director who is intimately involved in their training and day-to-day -day activities, which you will acknowledge probably involves giving them a response vehicle where they can be in the field. And, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, Chief, I had to say <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Volkswagen's uh, coming, man. I'm telling you, one day. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. I mean, most of what, you know, agency planners, fire chiefs, EMS uh, chiefs need to do is be well attuned to the skill set of their providers, uh, their clinicians, to uh, to see that they're well taken care of, that they have the equipment they need, and and that that the the system is nimble enough to accommodate that. And I know so, many, so much of that. Is, I mean, you don't need me to tell you that. Everybody who's listening to this knows that answer. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate that. I, I think from a, uh, hearing from a doctor, though, their perspective of what they see, because, you know, it, 
we all need to have a, a little bit different perspective from time to time. We get so focused on that what's in front of us that sometimes it's good to step back and have someone else tell us. Uh, from from an, uh, last question here, from an emergency response perspective, you know, we've talked a little bit about what we've learned, but what really, what have we learned already from this experience, and what do you su suspect uh, will be some of the outcomes of what we've learned? Yeah, well, I, I'll tell you, you know, as you were saying that, it was unambiguous in my mind what my first response to that would be. One of the things we learned is that all the little nuanced, ridiculous irritating little things that we are forced to do on a day-to-day -day basis that do not matter in terms of patient care, they all went away, you know, during this. And you know what? It didn't matter. You know, it didn't make a difference. It didn't make it in the in-hospital. You know, nobody seemed to care whether you had a Diet Coke at the nurse's station, okay? Uh, some, mm. some of the, don't get me wrong, HIPAA is a fine, fine fantastic, necessary bit of regulatory uh, life that we live in, but some aspects of it are ridiculous and have hampered patient care. And when they went away, you know what? It didn't matter. Uh, so some of the, I, I don't want to use the, the B word, bull something else, but a lot of the bull something else went away. And you know what? Things got better. That's one of the things yeah. I think we learned is that some of the ridiculous things we do that serve no purpose went away and we were just fine without them yeah the world did not come to an end correct the world did not so, come to an end you know because you didn't send me an email saying you failed to document this or that in, in your patient care report you know yeah we got along just fine without it yep absolutely and um you know, I think that's uh, good to, to take away the thing you said earlier, too, about uh, the, you know, all of the uh, practice we've done over the years and all of the things we've done to get ready for this type of thing. This is why we did all of that practice. This event has been it. And I think your observations are great. Anything else you want to add, Doc, before I close? No, just thanks for giving me the opportunity. It's fantastic to talk to the folks, and it's always good to talk to you, Chief. I miss you like crazy. Well, Doc, I appreciate it. I, I miss you as well. I want to thank you for everything you do and for your service to the fire and EMS industry. Please join us next time on Fire Rescue One's Side Alpha podcast. Take care, keep safe, and stay smart.